Well, good evening. Glad to be with you. You'd please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. This evening we are in Matthew chapter 8. We will begin reading in verse 18, go through verse 27, but the sermon will be covering verses 23 through 27 in particular. This is the word of our God. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Well, the great career of Martin Luther started in many ways at a pivotal event The Lord had been working on him. He had felt a great sense of guilt over his own sin and feeling like he needed to be serving in the church, but that wasn't what he was preparing to do. But as the Lord had been working on him, one night he was caught in a rainstorm. A terrible thunderstorm came upon him, and he didn't have cover. He was in between towns trying to get to the closest town. And as he was in the middle of the rainstorm, Uh, lightning flashed very close to him. Some scholars even believe that he was actually struck by a lightning bolt as he was in this storm. And as he was terrified beyond belief, believing that the Lord is the one who has sent this after him and that the Lord is angry with him, he cries out, he says a prayer to St. Anne, the patron saint of minors. His father was a minor, so this was the patron saint he could call upon for his family to... Uh, take care of him according to Roman Catholic belief. So he said a prayer to St. Anne that if he would just be delivered, that he would become a monk, serve the Lord in the church. Sure enough, he was delivered. He entered the monastery, and the rest, as they say, is history. But if we evaluate this event in Martin Luther's life, Let's ask us our, ourselves a question about this. Was his, were his actions, was his way of thinking one that was based in faith? At the very best, we could say that it was the response of a very immature faith. But more than anything, he was motivated simply by fear. He wanted to survive. He did something which is completely at variance with God's word and praying to a saint. 
But nonetheless, he was delivered and on it went. There's a similar situation in which we find the disciples here tonight in our passage. The disciples have followed Jesus' call. As we read, Jesus is telling his disciples to go over to cross the Sea of Galilee with him. And we run into these disciples who did not put that calling of Christ first. They give these excuses for why it is that they can't really go. And they're left behind. But these disciples now are the ones who have heeded the call, who have done the right thing and are going with Christ. And yet, the Lord sends a storm. Maybe you're the one who has sacrificed it all to follow Christ. And yet, you still find yourself tried and tossed and afflicted more than those who are around you. Why is it that the Lord sends storms upon those who follow him? What's the point? And how do you respond to the storms that God sends your way? By God's grace this evening, what I want to show you from this passage is that Christ calls Christians to a mature faith that believes in Christ's deity and confidently trusts in his care. So the main overarching idea that I want you to get from this sermon is that Christ calls Christians to a mature faith that believes in Christ's deity and confidently trusts in his care. So let's evaluate the passage that we've read, as we've seen already. The disciples get in the boat with Jesus, and as they're going across the Sea of Galilee, a great storm comes upon them very quickly. And this is a very fierce storm. They're not just a normal storm. Uh, Storms are very common on the Sea of Galilee, and they were able to come up very quickly. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains around it, and uh, the way that the topography works, uh, the clouds could gather very quickly over those mountains and then come and blow across the sea. It was not something that was unfamiliar, particularly for some of these disciples who, as we know, were fishermen who made their living on the Sea of Galilee. This was not their first time being caught in the middle of a storm. And yet, this particular storm is of such a character that they fear for their lives. They're convinced that they're going to die if things continue the way that they are going. And so, they come to Jesus for help. And where is Jesus in the midst of all of this? What's he doing? Well, he's in the boat, sleeping like a baby. Not a care in the world, it seems. The disciples come to him for help, and they cry out, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And then, perhaps quite contrary to how we would think he would respond, Christ first, before he rebukes the storm and stops the waves and makes everything all right, takes time to stop and rebuke the disciples. Where he says to them, In verse 26, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he arises and rebukes the the winds and the sea, and they are calmed. Why is it that the Lord rebukes them? What kind of faith was he looking for that he says they are those of little faith? I think this is an important question to answer for us to understand the passage and what's going on here. 
Because ultimately, they are rebuked for having weak faith because it's demonstrated that in their fear and their response that they have not recognized who Christ is and why they, are, they truly should be following him. They did not trust him to be their security. Well, who is Jesus? Hopefully we know that answer very clearly, that he is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity come in the flesh to redeem us from our sins. It seems the disciples did not have a great sense of this at this point. Nonetheless, this is something that should have been very apparent to them. It's very clear from this passage that Jesus is God in the flesh, as God alone is the one who can calm the storm. And this is something that is testified for us in many places in Scripture. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9, tells us, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. We have similar ideas in Psalm 107, verses 23 through 31, and Psalm 65, verse 7. God alone is the one who can calm the raging of the sea. And yet, their exclamation at the end is not, truly, this is the Son of God, but who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? So they do not understand the divine identity of Christ as of yet. And this lack of understanding is something that is culpable. This is not just, oh, well, who can blame them? And it's not every day that you run into God in the flesh, and so why would you think that this one that you're following is God in the flesh? But yet, this is something that they were responsible to know and understand. Now, why do I say that? Well, Jesus was not just any person who would come. Christ, as we should know from the preaching of the Gospels, as he has been going through proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God, but not just that the kingdom of God is coming, but it has come in his person. He himself is the king of the kingdom. He is the one in whom the law has been completely fulfilled. He is the one who is going to sit in judgment over all people at the end of the age. This is not just some prophet. This is not just anybody else who has come along before who can make these claims. These are unique claims, claims that only God himself can make. And it's this one who has been teaching these things and claiming these things for himself that has called these disciples to follow him. And they have heeded the call and are following him. But this should then bring the question to us, if they don't know and believe that he is God in the flesh... What are they doing following someone who makes these claims if they don't know him to be God? No, they should know who he is because he is God in the flesh. He has said all of these things truly, but they have not understood it. They've simply followed without understanding. And this is indicative of a weak faith. It is not something that we find to be altogether novel. We find this very often with new converts, or certainly children. Children who grow up in the church come to a belief in God, a belief in Christ, and they understand certain things, but oftentimes their first exclamations of faith 
are done with very little knowledge about who Christ truly is, who God truly is, because they simply haven't grasped it. Even new converts oftentimes will heed calls to faith and repentance without really understanding the nature of the gospel, the nature of who Christ is and who God is. It doesn't mean that the faith is invalid. It doesn't mean that it's no good. It means that it's weak. It's immature. It doesn't have a full knowledge of who God is. And so such faith then can commit to follow. It is a precious thing, but because it is superficial, there are many problems that come along with it. It can be very self-centered, selfish, doubting of the Lord. And Christians are called to grow beyond this stage. And so here's the rebuke of Christ then. Yes, they have faith, but a weak faith, a little faith. And Christ is rebuking them, calling them to a greater faith. The fact that they came to Jesus for help is good, but they came in fear and in doubt, and Jesus calls them to a greater expression of the faith. And this then helps also inform us why it is that God sent this storm their way. Again, they're the ones who have heeded Christ's call. We would think that the good things would come their way, but God has sent this storm as he sends oftentimes many trials in our lives for the purpose of testing his people, testing his disciples, and growing them in faith. This is something that is testified to us in the book of James. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we are told this is, in fact, one of the key purposes God has in trials. Where there James says, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness.'" And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God sends this trial because he intends for his disciples to grow in knowledge and maturity unto a true faith. And this episode then reveals to the disciples and reveals to us some very important things. As we've seen, it testifies very powerfully to the identity of Jesus He is not just another prophet. He is God in the flesh. It shows that the disciples did not yet believe this as they ought. It shows that this lack of faith then resulted in fear. And it shows that we must have faith in the divinity of Christ and that that belief must change our lives. As I mentioned, as the main point, Christ calls Christians to a mature faith that believes in Christ's deity and confidently trusts in his care. So we've evaluated the disciples and their plot and as they have dealt with going through this storm. How can we learn from their example, from what they went through? How can we apply this to our own lives? Well, there are three things in particular that I want us to consider in learning from this passage First, we need to believe in the deity of Christ. Secondly, we must confront sinful fear in our own lives. And thirdly, we must walk in a mature faith. Let's consider then believing in the deity of Christ. Particularly if you are a child here, this is a very important thing for you to know. We believe in one God who exists in three persons. And the second person of the Trinity, the Son, became a man. 
just like the men that you see here. He walked among us. He was hungry. He was tired. But unlike any man you've ever known, he lived a perfect life. For he was God in the flesh. Even though he had to grow, he had to learn, nonetheless, he did all of this in perfect obedience to his Father. And he is the one who has lived and has died for our sins. And it's essential that we believe that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. Because if he is not, then first of all, he's a liar. And what he has said in the Gospels concerning himself cannot be true about himself if he is not God, and therefore what he says is not trustworthy. We should not hail him as our Redeemer, hail him as our Savior, if he is not indeed God in the flesh. Also, if he is not God in the flesh, he could not atone for our sins. He had to be perfect, he had to be spotless, he had to give the infinite sacrifice to atone for our sins that we had have made against the Father. And if he was not God, he could not offer himself up that way. If Jesus is not God, he also could not reveal the Father to us. As Christ testifies, he is the one who has come from the bosom of the Father and who reveals the Father to us, reconciling us to the Father in himself. And no one else has come from the Father to reveal the Father to us. Only Christ has done this. Only he can. And if he is not God, He cannot reveal the Father to us and reconcile us to the Father. But also, if Jesus is not God, but simply another man or some great spiritual being, then he can be supplanted by other figures, by other men. And we see this in examples of other religions who have a place for Jesus, but it's not the supreme place of being God in the flesh. We can think of Islam. Jesus is a great prophet in Islam. But he's supplanted by Muhammad, the greater prophet, according to them. In Mormonism, where Jesus is the firstborn of, of God, but he's just one spirit child among many who just had a better plan than Lucifer. Or certainly if we think of the liberal Christians in the way that they reject biblical authority and just really view Christ as another man, a great teacher, well... His word is not authoritative. It's not something that must absolutely command our lives, and so we can just insert any other philosophy of man to overtake what Christ has said because one man's opinion is as good as any other ultimately. And so the deity of Christ is essential to the Christian faith. It's a non-negotiable of Christian belief and something that Jesus himself even highlights He says this very powerfully in John chapter 8. We're there as he's debating with the Jews. He says to them in verses 23 and 24, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Most of your translations will have it say, unless you believe that I am he, but literally in the Greek it is I am. He is claiming the I am, the divine name of Yahweh for himself. Unless you believe I am that I am, you will die in your sins. And then John further goes on in chapter 20 of his epistle, verse 31, a well-known verse for us. 
Why has he written his gospel? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The deity of Christ is not an appendage to the Christian faith, but an essential element of it. This is something that the apostles died for. It's something that our forefathers in the faith and in the church fought for in establishing the creeds of the church, the great creeds such as the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. This is what they were fighting for because it was essential. And it is also essential for Christian living for the way that we conduct our lives because we are called to an ultimate trust, to an ultimate dependence upon Christ, to obey Him, even in the face of the greatest trials that life can throw at us. And if we're going to do that, we must have a conviction about the deity of Christ. Otherwise, we will not overcome our sinful fear. We must believe in the authority of the absolute truthfulness of Jesus Christ in order to overcome our own sinful fear. And therefore, believing the deity of Christ is essential. But then that also leads us into the second point of application that I want us to consider, confronting our own sinful fear. The command not to fear is a very common command in the Bible. I've heard it said that it's the most common command. I'm not entirely sure if that's true. But either way, we do find it time and again. Fear not. What kind of fear is it that the Scriptures are calling us not to have? For the Scriptures also tell us that we are to fear the Lord. The kind of fear that we are called not to indulge ultimately is fear that doubts or disbelieves God. Fear that detracts from who God is that says God is not the sovereign one. God is not the one who is good in all of his ways, who is working all things according to the counsel of his own plan and causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign. But sinful fear doubts his power and his plan. God is good, but fear doubts his love and his care. God is with us always, but fear doubts the presence of Christ by his spirit and the trustworthiness of his word. We can therefore never make peace with doubt or ungodly fear. It is a corrosive cancer. It is the opposite of faith. And it brings evil fruit in our lives. And therefore, it's helpful for us to ask the question, How much does fear characterize your own life? Is fear a driving force in the way that you live, or in particular circumstances? Fear that doubts the Lord. What has fear driven you to do or kept you from doing that was opposite to what you knew God had commanded? If we know Christ to be God, then we must overcome this fear even as the disciples were called to overcome this fear. So how do we speak to our fearful hearts then? How do we confront the fear that we do find in our hearts? For it is natural for us to be fearful when we're confronted with difficult circumstances, circumstances that are beyond our control, and that pose a danger to us. What steps can we take to overcome fear 
both beforehand to arm ourselves so that when we come into these circumstances, we are already ready to meet them, or even in the heat of the moment. Well, three things in particular I would want to point you to. First, we must confront ourselves with the truths about who God is. We must be telling ourselves, God is good, God is sovereign, he has promised in his word, he will never leave or forsake, that he is bringing about all things according to his sovereign plan, and we must make this a conviction of our heart. Uh, Many of you may be familiar with the author Jerry Bridges. Uh, He writes something that I found very helpful. He talks about the difference between a belief and a conviction. He talks about a belief being something that you hold, and a conviction is something that holds you. And what he's arguing for is that we need to be those who, when it comes to the Christian faith and these truths about the gospel, these truths about God's, we don't just simply want to hold on to this idea, but we want to be something that grasps us, something that has a hold upon us, that drives us, that motivates us, and that animates us in all that we do. We want these truths about who God is to be a conviction that therefore causes us to live out of these truths rather than out of these sinful ideas that may suggest themselves to our minds that our flesh may call us to walk in. Secondly, we need to recite the futility of fear and the benefits of faith. Perhaps you've been in a situation where you let fear rule you. How did that work out? Are you so thankful that you lived in fear, that you gave in? Has it produced such great and wonderful fruit in your life that you want to come back to the well of fear again and drink? I doubt that's the circumstance that any of you have found. I think rather what you found is that when you walk by faith, you find the Lord graciously meets you there, perhaps not giving you every desire of your heart, but giving you his grace, giving you his presence and his blessing. That's something that we need to recite to ourselves. Fear does not bring about good fruit. Again, it's the opposite of faith. But faith has all of the benefits of Christ attached with it. God has given us his blessings in Christ, calls us to walk by faith in him. And these are the things that we need to be reciting to ourselves so that we are, again, convicted. The way of faith is better than the way of fear. And then thirdly, having considered these things, we need to resolve in our hearts that, yes, we are going to walk in this way, come what may, whatever the world may throw at us, whatever my heart or mind may say, I will believe God's word over my own imagination, over my own eyes, whatever it is that may confront me. Let God be true and every man, even myself, be a liar. I will walk in his ways. And in doing this, we are able to confront the fear that so often dogs us and to walk in a humble faith before our God acknowledging his sovereignty, not the sovereignty of our fear. 
And thirdly, we are called then to walk in a mature faith. For a little faith, a fearful faith, as we have seen, is one that is insufficient. It's a true faith, but we're called to more. That being said, let's also notice the great and wonderful grace of God in the passage here, that Jesus does save those of little faith. He doesn't say, oh, you have little faith because your faith is little. Work it out. Now he rebukes, but he saves. For weak faith grasps hold of the same strong Christ as any other faith. The strength of our religion is not in the strength of our faith. It's in the strength of our Redeemer, of our Christ. And so even a weak faith is a saving faith. But nonetheless, Christ does rebuke the weak faith. And we should not remain there. Therefore, how do we pursue a mature faith? Well, firstly, you must orient your life around God's commands and around his kingdom. God has not saved us to serve our own purposes. He is not at our beck and call in order to make all of our dreams come true. He has called us and saved us to service, to serve him and to serve our neighbor. There is no faith, there is no holiness at all if we are living by our own preferences. In coming to Christ, we are acknowledging he is Lord, we are not. His way is law. His way is the truth that we must walk in and not our own. And therefore, we must orient our lives entirely around what he has said. Secondly, you must therefore use the public and the private means of grace for your spiritual growth. How are we to orient our lives around what Christ has commanded, around his kingdom? Well, we have to be about the business of the kingdom. As God calls us week by week to join together with the saints and to worship. I'm preaching to the choir here a little bit. You're here on a Sunday night. Most people don't do that. But nonetheless, it's a helpful reminder. This is something that we're called to do week in and week out. Not just when we feel like it, but it's essential for our growth. But also at our homes, day by day, in our family worship, in our private devotions, We're coming to the Word. We're coming to prayer. We're making use of the means that God has given where He has promised, I will meet you here. I will grow you here. The words of life are given to us by God in His Scriptures. And this is where we meet Him. This is where we gain strength to live the Christian life. And so... We must attend upon these things, but not just simply attend upon them haphazardly. Okay, I know I'm supposed to go to church. I'm supposed to read my Bible. Check. I did that. Moving on. We have to devote ourselves to these things. We have to prepare for them. We need to meditate upon what we learn. The Word doesn't just work because my eyes went over them, and therefore because my eyes went over the words, they're magic and they seep into our hearts. We sang Psalm 1 this evening. Well, in the law, the godly man meditates day and night, fills his heart, he fills his mind with it in order that he may grow, that he may learn and discipline himself by it. 
We are called to discipline our hearts, to discipline our minds by word and by prayer. And in doing this, God will mature us in the faith, teach us how to walk in holiness and righteousness. And the third thing for us to make use of is the means of discipleship, being discipled by believers whom you know to be mature, finding those who you have seen the, way, the outcome of their way of life, who have walked with the Lord for years and years, and then having them be a part of your life, seeking their counsel, learning the Scriptures together with them, being sharpened by them. This is something that's essential for parents to do for their children, certainly, all of our children. No children comes out of the womb with a mature faith. They all have a very small faith when the Lord is pleased to grant them faith. It must be nurtured. It must be grown up. And in order to do that, you need to know what a mature faith is yourself so that you can lead them in the right way. But there's a need even beyond parents teaching their children. We need this in the body of Christ in general. And these are ways that we can pursue a mature faith. And what is the fruit then of a mature faith? What does it look like to walk in mature faith? It looks like walking according to the law of God. It's highlighted for us by Christ, the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But this love is not as is so often conceived of by many people in our culture, perhaps even we ourselves, as just a warm, fuzzy feeling. I feel good things about God. I feel good things about my neighbor. Or rather, it results in right action. As Christ says time and again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John reiterates in his epistle, the love of God is to keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. But also, loving our neighbor is something that is shown in our actions. It must take a tangible form, as James highlights in his epistle. Now, we must not love in word only, but in deed. What good is it if one comes to us in need and we just say, oh, be warm, be filled. We don't take care of their need. Or even Christ, when he speaks of the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, what is it that characterizes the sheep? He relates their acts. They're not saved by their works. But nonetheless, those who are part of the redeemed are those who have the works that are in keeping with a true faith. And a mature faith also is informed, it's confident, and it's hopeful. Informed by the Word, as we talked about the essential nature of the Word, grounding it all. Mature Christians, therefore, being grounded in the Word, in who God is, who He has revealed Himself to be, are not motivated by fear or doubt, but they know from experience that God's word is true, that he is faithful to all that he has said, and he is faithful to us in all of our efforts. And therefore, mature Christians are hopeful for the future, knowing that whatever the Lord has done up to this point, whatever he will do in the days to come, he is absolutely working all things together for good. And knowing this then enables mature Christians to act with a great confidence, not waffling back and forth about the course that they're going to take, but knowing they're walking 
in a repentant faith, not a perfect faith, none of us have a perfect faith, but a repentant faith before the Lord, seeking his will, according to his commands as best as they know how. Therefore, they don't have to question every little decision that they make. They can walk forth in confidence according to the pattern of God's word. They can walk into a storm and not be afraid. Not seeking the storm. Mature Christians are not those who seek adversity, who seek the tempest. But they don't shy back from it when the Lord brings it either. They can be at rest in the midst of their storm just so long as Jesus is with them. For Christ calls Christians to a mature faith that believes in Christ's deity and confidently trusts in his care. That is what we've seen from the passage this evening. So as we wrap up, I want to come back then to Luther. Luther, who started in fear with an immature faith that did not know what he was supposed to do or where he was going, by God's grace overcame fear, and he found grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Luther was caught in the midst of the tempest of the Reformation and had all of the might of the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire bearing down upon him, calling for him to recant all that he was teaching concerning the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ, he responded in a mature faith, not out of fear. He stood firm, and the Lord preserved him. And the Lord blessed him and us greatly through what he had been put through. But also, we find for the disciples, this storm was not the end of the story for them either. For in a few short chapters in Matthew chapter 14, we find the disciples are in another storm. Christ has called them to go across the Sea of Galilee again. A storm comes again, seemingly just as terrifying and terrible. But instead of crying out, instead of worrying for their lives, they see Christ walking on the water to them. And even to the point of having faith enough to walk on the water with him, Peter leaves the boat, goes and walks on the water with his Savior. Now, he ultimately does doubt. He falls. He needs to be saved by Christ. But there's a vast difference from the first time they were caught in the storm and the second time. Their faith has increased. Their faith has matured. So the Lord has sent such storms into their lives in order to grow their faith. And he has done so for you as well, that you may see the deficiencies in your faith, that you may be refined by adversity, and that then seeing these things by his grace may learn to seek him in greater trust, in greater love, and in greater hope, knowing that in the final day, he will bring that faith to a completion, to a perfection, where there will be no more doubt, There will be no more fear, but only the realization of all that God has promised. And we'll be able to testify throughout all of our lives, every last believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be able to testify, he was faithful, he kept his word. And if that is true, 
May we walk in the confidence of that faithfulness now and all of our days. Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would teach us true faith, that we would not be satisfied with how far you have brought us, though we would be grateful for how you have worked already in our lives, but that we would ever seek to grow more and more in conformity to Christ. Teach us to shrug off and turn from ungodly fear that we may seek you in true faith and so do your works for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.